Society, episode 54. How are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing well, but it says we're off air. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the inner workings of the Sports and Society podcast. <laughs> uh, leave that as our start. Um, you know I'm going to. I don't have time to edit that out. <laughs> doing well on this 54th episode of sports and society what uh before we had to restart here uh we were talking about nba it's been a crazy week hasn't it yeah i was asking you um what your most standout headline is from the week Ooh, most standout see this is interesting because like the thing that i want to talk about the most like standout headline to me is probably Chris Paul to Houston. Yeah. But the thing I want to talk about is Phil Jackson and the Knicks. Okay. Um, and it's really interesting because that was this big story. And then the Chris Paul thing happened and it. I feel like we haven't really talked about it since then. Right. Uh, or the media hasn't. And I'm just, uh, it fascinates me what this is going to do to Phil's legacy. Right. Uh, yeah. It got swept to the side, absolutely. I mean, significantly. Uh, it was like a one-day headline that Phil Jackson got fired. I don't know. I wonder what is it? Eleven championships. Yeah. He'll never lose that. He'll never lose his coaching legacy. I, I think that is almost. I mean, he would have to do something like extremely criminal that led to like charges to where he spent like 20 years in like maximum security prison. Um, it have to be like Joe Paterno stuff. Yeah. It would have to be really, really awful. Um, for I think that legacy to get hit. Uh, however, I don't know if he has anything to tout beyond that. Um, so I, I don't know if that how that plays out in his legacy as much as just like maybe he has two stories from here on out. Have you ever read one of his books? Only bits and pieces. I've never sat down and read the whole thing. I'm intrigued to know because like his teams were never not like kind of on edge. Mm. Uh, like I mean, Jordan, those teams were never like totally happy teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Lakers certainly, I mean, he kind of fueled, I think, that Kobe and Shaq stuff. So there's this part of me that wonders, like, if he was, if really his downfall was that he thought he could do those same things in New York, uh, and the people that he had just were not the kind of people that were going to respond to that in the way that those other guys did. Right. Or if you just can't do that if you're not sitting on the bench. That's, uh, yeah. You know? Like being in their ear every single day, all day. Uh, I mean, you think about how much time an NBA team spends together, how many long flights and hotel rooms and everything. Um, and yeah, I, I think too. Of, uh, I, I was talking to a friend the other day, and he had the his the quotation of him is he said or the paraphrase something that Phil Jackson was more Pat Riley than Pat Riley was <laughs> in that it was kind of this like psychotic level of devotion to winning uh, and to being excellent and to be like unique in his approach. And so 
he was just the best at being kind of psychotic about it. Not to mention he had the two greatest players of all time on his teams. Um, That's uh, so you're going to put Kobe as the second best player of all time. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a statement, Kyle. I know. I dig it. What a, a hot takes here on. Because uh, <laughs> everyone's lining up to get our hot takes. <laughs> we, we're going to be on ESPN here soon, man. <laughs> Come on, Stephen A. Smith. Bring it on. I kind of think the only reason people don't say that more often is because people dislike Kobe so much. Hmm. I, I could see it. It's interesting to me because it's hard to judge at this point. I was talking to somebody earlier this week about the fact that those two guys are clearly the best two shooting guards in the history of the NBA. Right. Um, and there is no shooting guard in even like half of what they were in the league at this point. Right. It's so moved away from shooting guards being important in any way in the NBA. Yeah, they're still out there. I just I don't know if there are any that is are as good as those two. And so yeah. I think it could like come back if there were two that were as good at playing that exact style of game. Yeah, I guess I just like it's so gone to ball dominant playing systems and so mm-hmm. point guards and wing guys that handle the ball are the ones that seem to matter these days. Right. But gosh, in those important games, how much did Kobe and Michael have the ball? Yeah. An incredible amount. Um, but so. Well, I think my main takeaway is kind of a, a summarizing sort of viewpoint. And so when I was reading through all the finals, so we're still in free agency. I think we got three more days of free agency. Is that right? Well, I mean, we got a whole summer of it, but who yeah. knows how much of it will get. Yeah. Mean anything. Um, so I see it this way. So the Clippers have a big two. San Antonio has a big two. Boston has a big two, kind of. Minnesota has a big two, maybe a big three. The Rockets have a big two. OKC, a big two. New Orleans, a big two. The Raptors, a big two. The Wizards, a big two. Portland, a big two. The Cavs have four, and the Warriors have four. The Cavs? Who's the Cavs for? Um, yeah, maybe they don't have four. I, I think the Cavs got three. Yeah. This is um, – there's actually – there's an ESPN story about this today that actually graded these guys out. Yeah. Uh, like how many all-NBA teams and all that kind of stuff. Right. And that the Wizards have 12 more points than anybody else. Right. And so, I don't know, I'm just looking at that and I'm like, I'm struck by how important Carmelo Anthony's decision might be. Oh, uh, see, I don't think it's important at all. Well, I think it depends. I think, um, I think if he went to the Cavs, that matters. And I think if he went to the Rockets, that matters. Uh, and then if he were for some crazy reason to choose another team, I mean, everybody's trying to get him. Um, I think it's interesting that this guy, like Melo, has never truly mattered in the NBA. And yet, every time uh, his name is mentioned, it like seems like he matters. But like he has never played on like 
a legitimate franchise that like was right there in the mix of things. Um, so I, I don't know why that it, it just intrigued me that all these teams have two. Um, the Warriors have four, and then just like how there could be another big three, but um, it's an interesting scope of a league, uh, just a professional league that it's like kind of playing out that way to me. It is, and I mean, like, there's so many. It'll be intriguing to see some of these other teams like come up. So, I mean, I think about the Bucks. Like, if Jabari and Giannis pull together, that's a big two right there. And what if you get a, you know, a third person to add to that mix? Or what if you get? You know, it's just who are these next guys going to be? Right. Um, and to push back on you a little bit, I think Carmelo going to the Rockets would be fascinating um, and potentially impactful. They're still not going to beat the Warriors, but it's interesting to me from a perspective of you've now got Chris Paul and Carmelo Anthony, the two arguably best mid-range shooters in the game on a team that doesn't ever want to shoot a mid-range jump shot ever. Right. Um, but I don't think I don't think he moves the needles with the Cavs at all. Really. I think I look at what he would be come in for Kevin Love. He would take Love's minutes um, and he would make them worse on defense. And I don't think he'd make them better on offense. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I just think that fourth option is valuable as far as day in and day out, maybe not in a seven game series as much, but I, I just think of like, when I watch the Warriors play a full game, what I am most struck by is that if like two of the four are hot, it's impossible. If three of the four are hot, it's really impossible. And so that's what strikes me is that you don't, it, it just increases your odds so much if you have four shooters. Well, I think that I would push back and just say that I think that what makes it work for the Cavs it, or the Warriors, excuse me, is that that fourth guy is not uh, someone you're going to ever count on for scoring. Mm. Like, he's there to facilitate play. Um, so, I mean, I I almost think that if you put Iguodala on the Cavs, that would make a bigger impact than it would to add Carmelo. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just... I, I don't disagree with that at all. I'm, I'm just saying that I think Melo to the Cavs would kind of like uh, that series next year would be more, even more interesting to me than it already is. I think it, it would be interesting from the perspective of we're going to see the Cavs lose again. <laughs> um, you know, what would be more interesting to me would be if LeBron went to the Knicks and then joined Carmelo there and they together went to the finals of the Knicks. That would mm-hmm. be a good story. And what's his name? Uh, Porzingis. Porzingis, yeah. Yeah, my dark horse is Minnesota. See, I, I want to say that too, but I, then I kind of think they were supposed to be the dark horse last year and it didn't work, so I'm kind of hesitant to go there again. Well, they were so young, and then they just added Jimmy Butler. Like That's a big addition, yeah. plus a whole other year of experience for Teague and Towns. Yeah, Teague, I think, will be the one that I think tips things in some ways. Yeah. Uh, that 
we'll see Carm- we'll see Wiggins and Towns grow. Fatigue is like I think you have to have at least a serviceable point guard at this point. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, and I think he's a massive improvement over Ricky Rubio. I agree. So I'm intrigued by them. It's been a fascinating thing offseason, I think, if only because we've seen a number of moves that we didn't ever expect to see. Um, right. Paul George to the Thunder is what? Who would have pictured that? Even Chris Paul right. to the Rockets. That makes no sense to me. Still right. makes no sense to me. Right. Um, yeah, the Warriors have the entire league in an uproar. Well, it's so fascinating because everybody's now being asked these questions like, do we try and win now or are we just trying to position ourselves for three years from now? Right. Also, how bad has the East gotten? There is nothing in the East. <laughs> I mean, the the Pacers could still make the playoffs next year at like one of the worst teams in the league. I mean, there are going to be some bad teams in the East in the playoffs. I think I saw a statistic that uh, that 13 of the top 15 players are in the West, and if Melo goes West, that makes it 14. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even trying to put Melo on that list. That guy might be John Wall for me. but yeah. I, I just saw that Bradley Beal's making $3, three million more a year than John Wall. Hmm. And these I contracts are interesting. So weird how they work. Yeah. Um, um, well, let's segue talking about Steph with another story, two more stories about Steph. Uh, what did you make of his contract, $200 million? Um, You know, I'm – I'm not a huge fan of these super contracts because I don't think they're good for the sustainability of the league. Um, But it's hard for me to argue with this for this guy who I think has brought in massive amounts of money for the Warriors and did it all on a contract that was the biggest value in the NBA. Right. Um, So, yeah, I'm, it's exciting. Um, for him, I'm happy to see him stick with the Warriors. There's, I don't think there's ever been a better fit between organization and player than those two. I agree with that. I think it struck me one. I think it's significant. Two hundred million, first two hundred million dollar contract. I think that's just as a, the milestone makes it significant. The number makes it significant. I also find it interesting that he kind of had created a little bit of an identity for himself the last few years as this sort of person that was willing to play for less. <laughs> and I'm not going to discredit that, but it, this also somewhat discredits that. As I did, you said you didn't care about money and you just signed the biggest contract in the history of the NBA. Like you can't say, obviously you can't say that anymore, but somewhat lessons you say in that before. Um, and then I also found LeBron's comment fascinatingly compelling, saying that he thought Steph deserves $400 million. Hmm. Which it's that sounds so insane. But with the money that is being generated in the NBA and with Steph selling the most jerseys, I think you can make a legitimate argument that that number is like fair and rational. And that's what's so like unbelievable that holy crap, there is an argument in the universe right now that is believable for a human being to be 
given a contract for $400 million. Um, well, and just the, even the gall to like for LeBron to say that is like fascinating. Like, oh my gosh, how did we get to this point? That, um, and, and, and it coming from the players, which is I'm on the side of the players. And so I'm just so conflicted and fascinated by the whole thing that, gosh, it, this oddly makes sense. And so what do I do with that? It's interesting. Yeah, it's it, it really is, and it's one of these things that yeah maybe no one should make that level of money, right. but somebody's gonna do it. Right. Uh, yeah, there's billionaires out there that make that much. Like I mean, let's year. be clear: the owners are making you know more than this every season. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all that said, I can't wait for Steph to shoot an 84. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. but you, you think he'll make the cut? Um, I don't know. I really don't. I, w- I could see it going one of two ways. I could see – I would love to see him make the cut. That would be what I would love to see, if only because I feel like that would give me some kind of bragging rights against you. Yes. Um, but I also could see him going, I don't think he's going to go 84. I would see him going like 76, 78 or something like that. Right. Uh, And not really competing, but what do you, I want to know your thoughts on him taking a a spot, this argument about him taking a spot from somebody else. Yeah. Here's my conclusion. It seems kind of trite. The arguments on both sides are, are valid. I don't find anything like, fallacious or outstanding in either argument um however i don't think either argument matters (laughs) it just doesn't matter it's not a big deal um i mean it's it's the one maybe i if i had to choose i'm going to lean towards sponsors can do whatever they want that's the point of a sponsor's exemption and so if you don't like that then you need to like argue with the sponsor's exemption rule not Steph taking a spot. He's just doing what the rule says to do. So take issue with the rule, not Steph. Well, I have to say that this league has got so – I mean, I don't know how much it costs to sponsor one of these tournaments, but I have to imagine it's like five hundred grand or something like that. Um, and so wow. we're really going to uh, complain about these sponsors coming in and trying to make their money back by doing something like this? I can't. Right. Uh, it's an argument for me that, like, I don't. It doesn't hold water, and I just, if you're relying on a, on that on that uh, exemption, you're probably not going to make it anyway. Uh, and so it's better for the whole tour if these go to these kind of guys. Yeah. The other part of the argument that is interesting to me is, I think there's a very legitimate argument that this is good for Web.com. And that more people are going to pay attention to a web.com event than ever before. Like, by far, uh, this tournament's going to get more coverage. However, it's almost slightly humiliating to the web.com tour in uh, that these are legitimate professionals that play this game at an extremely high level. And to be kind of ushered into this space of a sideshow, I think, is maybe slightly humiliating. It may be good for numbers, but I wonder about the hit that it'll be to, I don't know, the tour at large and 
And if he makes the cut, maybe even that's kind of humiliating too. Uh, I mean, I could I could see that being humiliating, but the other stuff, like I mean, uh, I don't know. It just you're relying on these sponsors, and you want to make it happen. And they're now doing like these Latin American tours and a Canadian tour and all that stuff. And it's it takes money, and that's you know I yep. I think we're in agreement that we want to support as many golfers as possible. Right. Uh, and in order to do that, you have to find the money somewhere. Right. And to do that, you have to you have to make it work for these sponsors. So exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, what uh, what's your prediction? Eighty four. Uh, I'm similar to you. I could see like a couple seventy eights. Um, I would not be surprised if he dropped an eighty four on the first day. Uh, I would be very surprised if he dropped uh, a sub seventy round. Like very, very surprised. Um, so yeah, I'm like you. Yeah, I probably see like a, a a 79, 75, or something like that. Um, did you watch the any of the quick end this weekend? No. Uh, it is fascinating to me because at the after round two, uh, leaders were at like minus ten and minus eight, and the overall victor, I think, it was two guys in a playoff at minus seven. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, was fascinating because everybody at the top of the leaderboard essentially folded over the second half of the weekend. Yeah. Uh, and it raised this uh, question for me about, like, what, these second-tier tournaments, are they are they even watchable sometimes because of what's happening in them? Hmm. Like, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't care about anybody on the leaderboard after round two. And at the end, like, there were a couple guys I cared about, but really uh, – it didn't seem like a tournament I cared about at all. I think for the casual golf fan or just the casual sports fan that catches some golf, watching guys play the game that you've never seen or heard of before is not all that exciting. The, the character and the narrative of the players plays a huge role in it. Um, so you got to really care about golf to watch a guy that's 98th on the money list compete. I get, but I don't necessarily think that's true. I think if it were exciting golf, that's that's still watchable. Like if, so maybe my thing is that if you're going to have one of these tournaments, you kind of have to set it up for people to go low, and then if you're going to do something like the U.S. Open where you want guys to shoot over par, then that's that's the only time that's only going to work if it's uh, players that are really at the top of the game. Mm. Well, that's the logic of the Travelers, which hosted last week's tournament. And they've worked really hard for that, is they wanted a tournament where guys can go low. And their whole thing is, like, catering to these guys that, so they feel like they're royalty while they're at the tournament. And so from going from a second-rate tournament to a first-rate tournament involves doing something like that. But it's also interesting. I feel like there are certain tournaments that I enjoy, like the John Deere every year. I don't know why, but I love the John Deere. Yeah. Um, they're kind of at this unique place, I think, where they're one of the last tournaments you can win to get into one of the majors. I think maybe the British Open or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have a very clear identity of what they want that tournament to be like. That tournament is a celebration of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that reason, it works for me. A lot of these, like, the Quicken just didn't have an identity at all. And so I couldn't even, 
find myself getting into it. Yeah, I didn't pay any attention to it. And I'm someone that follows God. Yeah. Well, um, what do you think about the U.S. men's national team these days? Uh, obviously, I enjoy that they're having some success. And I like a lot of our players. And I feel that whenever I see the team, I still haven't watched them play a full match in a while. But whenever I see clips, I feel like they're they're in, like they're game. Uh, so whatever the game plan is and for whatever they're doing to create some chemistry there, I feel like the guys are believing it. And the goals they're scoring are nice. They're scoring some really nice goals. Uh, they're not, it's not Brian McBride headers anymore. I know. It, it's, it's legitimate movement of the ball and setting up legitimate opportunities one after the other. So can't be frustrated about that. Um, I'm not a big Bruce fan just as a no. person. It's, uh, we're in this place now where I'm like, are we going to have to eat our words on Bruce Arena? I'm kind of yeah. thinking we are. I think we're in the like coming to terms with it phase. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to say, like, I've always been had a little bit of a soft spot since he got his start at UVA. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, I was not a fan of this hire at all. And yet it really seems to be working at this point in a way that it looks more sustainable than I would have expected it to. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if I need to be a little bit more responsible in my understanding of how things played out and who and what he is, because all that stands out in my head is that quip of uh, kind of the backhanded comment about Jurgen saying something along the lines of like, we're going to, we're going to pick Americans to play for America or something like that. So I don't, I don't even have enough context on that quote, but I, I took it as, <laughs> as truth because I already didn't like Bruce that much. Uh, well, I have to, speaking of like extraordinary soccer managers, I have the utmost respect in the world for what Jurgi Lowe has been able to do with the German team. Yeah, they got a really good thing going. They And it seems like he in some ways is responsible for like what for them to go to the confederations cup with their B team and their B team to play with the same verve and passion as their senior team is just kind of amazing in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like they essentially put in all these guys we've never heard of and they were just as good. I mean, they beat the, like the first string Chile team. Right. Yeah. They were impressive. He's impressive. Every time I hear him talk, I'm like, gosh, I, I that sounded good. <laughs> He's legit. Oh. Um, did you pay any attention to the instant replay VAR stuff in the Confederations Cup? So the, I did. I happened to be watching the match when there was the shambles about the red card that went to the wrong player, and they had to go to the back to the instant replay to go to the other player, and the red card was given after an instant replay anyway. It it was. I found in the end, like the fact that they got it right, and I think it was the right decision, kind of makes it okay. But at the same time, um, I'm a little concerned that we're going to see some matches ruined by red cards going to people that would have gotten away with it in the past. Right. Well, I think that was the case in the final, from what I understood, is that uh, there was a blatant elbow that should have been a red card it would have been passed by without VAR because the ref completely missed it. 
So they call for the VAR, three minutes of deliberation, which happens right in between the two benches, which is insane because they're just screaming at the ref the whole time. Uh, And then uh, if you go to VAR, you only have two options, red card or nothing, and the ref chose yellow card. (laughs) So he completely broke protocol with what the rules are written down, and there was no protocol to deal with someone that went off protocol. Uh, so it seems kind of like a mess, but I would imagine they'll figure it out. I, I don't see it going I, like everything's going instant replay. I think they'll keep it. I agree. Although they're, they've got to do something. The fact that they haven't figured out the ref intimidation thing yet yeah. uh, makes me question their ability to figure anything out. Yeah. That's such a clear issue at this point, and they've done nothing to fix it. You would only need to come down hard on that one or two times. Yeah, and they would claim unfairness, but once you do it like three or four times, uh, it would be over and you just move on. Yep. There's still grown men out there that would know what they can and can't do. Yeah. No. But, um, well, I did. from Wimbledon? Yeah, I mean, Curios going out's a big deal. Um, yeah. I'm. I just really want him to succeed, and I don't know if he's just ever going to get there. But yeah, and this Venus situation is just tragic in every sense of the word. Yeah, so I think one of my questions was a media question, as in, is that a fair question to her? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think it's necessary. I think it's definition British tabloid question. Um, yeah, I found it really insensitive and stupid uh, but then what do we expect from media these days yeah i suppose that's true uh and what about McEnroe's comments on serena god like is it, he has a book coming out is that what this all was about yeah it was promotion for his book yeah it's clearly just him stirring the pot it's like i don't hate McEnroe, but this is clearly just him trying to say things to get attention at a time when he doesn't have any attention and he wants to sell his book. Yeah. I was most annoyed with uh, his segment when they first went on air for Wimbledon. I made sure to like seek it out because I was like, I I wonder what he's going to say when he gets on air for the first time since his comment. And his quote was like, you know, um, is trying to placate everyone that is hating on him. And it's some to the extent of like, gosh, if I ever put my foot in my mouth before, like, come on. It's like, what an arrogant privilege take on that. Like, just say you're sorry and you shouldn't have said it. And it was it was stupid and insensitive and move on. Um, as much as I like his tennis commentating, he's a doofus. I mean, how often is that the case, right? These guys are all yeah. doofuses on some level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but also in that part of the world, you sent me an article on the Isle of Man motorcycle road race. Yeah, which for those of you that are into motorsports, it's one of those things that's like the height of motorsports stuff. Like driving the roads of the Isle of Man is a, is a sacred tradition in some way. Mm. And I've always kind of heard about this. Um, essentially, it's different from other motorcycle races because it's a time trial. And so you just have to push yourself as fast as you can go. But I had no idea that they've averaged like three deaths a year for their previous time. And they've had three this year. I think they had six last year. 
it's just it's unconscionable in some way that uh, any sponsor could put money behind this or that it even exists like on, on some level i'm willing to say it's okay if a bunch of motorcycle guys want to get together and do this thing mm-hmm. um but like i'm not sure i'm okay with the british government giving them a permit to do it i'm not sure i'm okay with any sponsors giving them money right. um go do this on your farm somewhere right um, but man it's and like watching some of the racing i don't know how it's not more people than that it's just absurd yeah it's pretty insane yeah yeah it's the sanctioning of it that is the problem yeah yeah i mean it's kind of like football like i think you and i have no problem with people that choose to play football as a profession right it's the fact that we're sanctioning it as a society that and condoning it through sponsorship and television deals that the pre- that raises the problem exactly yeah really bizarre uh, like and it's not like there are people I, I guess I have to be careful here because there have been people that have died in cycling races and you know it's not particularly uncommon two race, racers I think died last year mm-hmm. um, but I think that there's an attempt to make it as safe as possible right um, so that like there's when and when somebody does something unsafe, it's called out. So, like this year, the Giro d'Italia wanted to have a competition for descending, and so they wanted to like set up certain areas. And if you were the fastest person through these five different descents over the course of the race, that you'd get a special jersey to take home. And the riders were all like, "No, that's stupid." Right. Um, and so, like the fact that that's that kind of self restraint exists in cycling. Um, makes it kind of okay in my mind that that's there's something about the fact that we know that by the very essence of doing this that people are going to die every year that's that's where i think we get into the issues yeah and i suppose the localized nature of the isle of men makes it uh, a little more uh, problematic that it's happening in the same place every time Mm -hmm. and like we haven't we haven't said maybe we should rethink this Right. It makes me fascinated in who these guys are that are signing up for this race. Well, that's the thing. Like, there, it's a bunch of amateurs, I think. And uh, I mean, there's professionals there, but really anybody, I think, can sign up hmm. to do it. Which is maybe that's even part of the issue as well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that much about it, to be honest. Uh, anyway, what's uh, you want to tell me what's going on in the cricket world? Yeah, um, there's a lot, always a lot going on in the cricket world. Uh, one thing I've been paying attention to is how much attention women's cricket gets. Hmm. Uh, and it's not a new thing. It's It's been happening for a while. Uh, the extent to which women's cricket is um, made legitimate by media coverage, I think, from my perspective, uh, and I'm not an expert on this in any way, far outweighs the legitimation of uh, women's sports in the United States. Hmm. Uh, as in, I, I just think it's a lot more and more well-respected uh, abroad. Um, 
that's not the main thing I wanted to talk about, but I, I just was thinking about that this week. And um, I, I was just struck. So I was paying someone attention to India and the West Indies were playing an ODI match and it was a really low scoring match, which always interests me when ODIs go really low, like something's always up. And when something's up with a low scoring match, that gets my attention because it, it latches on to the nuances of the game, which I think are really interesting. And that could be just because the only people that write about cricket are really nerdy cricket people <laughs> and they love the nuances of the sport. So if you follow it, you have to like appreciate the nuances of the sport. But at any rate, this match uh, happened on a wet pitch, which um, just means the ground was wet. And so it made it easier for the spin bowlers to be more effective. And one thing that stands out to me about that is in sports, whenever someone uses like craftiness, I like am always amazed that it works when it does work. <laughs> like a knuckleball pitcher or a pitcher that just throws a bunch of junk. I'm always like, how are you, how are you getting away with that? Like this blows my mind that it's not just the people that are brute force and high pace that are doing well. Uh, and so in that way, it just stuck out to me that these spin bowlers are a legitimate thing. And every time I see someone bowl a spin ball, I'm like, well, that ball is absolutely going to get smashed. And it doesn't. I'm like, that's amazing. How did that not just get absolutely obliterated? Um, so uh, that's just what stuck out to me is uh, <laughs> reading about the in the descriptions of this match. I read like three of them were like, 10 pages each. And I was like, how on earth are y'all writing about this much on a, a match that was pretty insignificant? Uh, says the man who says he could write 10 pages on every pitch of a major league baseball game. Which is why I read three articles on this match. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of us that didn't grow up with cricket, a spin bowler is one, it's kind of like the curveball, right? So that you throw yeah. it. So that when it bounces, it bounces in a direction that fools the batter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just made to be a or it's a, an attempt at just unpredictability. And so some of the best spin bowlers all the of all time have some of the best bowling statistics of all time. Um, that if you do it right, it works. But if you do it at all wrong, you get absolutely smashed. Hmm. So you got to be just so finely tuned in spin bowling. Whereas pace bowlers can get away with a little bit more. Well, it is interesting. I, I, your point, I think, is interesting in terms of like, I'm thinking about pitching because you bring it up. And like Reg Maddox certainly uh, was not a guy who had overpowering stuff. Mm -hmm. And yet he made this great career, I think, by being better at the little things than everybody else. Yeah, he was crafty and he threw more first pitch strikes than any pitcher ever. His first pitch strike rate was like, it's like almost double the person that's second. Hmm. Um, he just had a knack for it. I think about ultimate with that as well, that all of the top tier teams, not all, but almost all of them play man to man. Cause you just put your guys, guys against the other best guys. Because when you go zone, you count on the other team to rip that to shreds. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that there are times and conditions when that works. Like if it's really windy, maybe you go zone. But right. uh, there are very few teams that will do it. And you, you'll see them go zone maybe like twice twice a game. 
Um, very few teams will go zone consistently because they are at the top tier. You put your best people against their best people. And that's why, you know, the NBA will let you play a zone now, but we don't see it happening. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just geek out on those little nuances. Sometimes <laughs> cricket might have it more than any other sport. No, I totally get that. What about cycling? Uh, so it's exciting. Tour de France is underway. Uh, just to kind of get on your point, I was excited to see. So for those of you all that don't know, Orca Scott is the best uh, team in the cycling world. Um, <laughs> and by that, I mean they're not the most dominant team, but they're by far the best team to root for. Yeah. Um, and I was just thrilled. that. Uh, so right now it's both the start of Tour de France and – the biggest stage race in the women's Peloton, which is the Giro Rosa. Um, and so I was just thrilled that in addition to doing backstage passes for the Tour de France, they are also doing backstage passes for the Giro Rosa, which I think is just to see that kind of recognition uh, that Orca Scott has given the women's team. Which means um, they're spending money on that. Yeah. Those are, those are well done videos. They're, they're really very dedicated well done. to that. Yeah. They early on, and this is an interesting point actually. That early on in the creation of the Orca used to be Green Edge and used to be now Orca Scott team. Um, that they made a decision to hire a videographer to come in and make these videos to help them build a fan base, and it's been really successful. I would argue yeah. that they have one of the best fan bases of all professional cycling. Um, and also just, it's fun. It's yeah, it really exactly. makes the game the, watching yeah. better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so it's one of those things, like, I wonder what would happen if team sky let everybody in, in the same way. Um, but they're still playing this game. Uh, so team sky looking incredibly dominant so far in the tour de France first time trial. Um, they put four guys in the top eight, which was pretty incredible. Wow. Um, and it was one of these things like towards the end of the day, the course got really slippery with rain. Uh, unfortunately, Valverde's out, uh, broke his kneecap, which is just, I can't imagine yep. coming back from that. But uh, he put, Froome put 30, 30 seconds into all his rivals because he was somehow able to do what Sky seems to always be able to do. Um, and it's one of these things like you never know with Sky. Maybe they were running like five PSI less in their tires. And that's what allowed them to do this. Mm-hmm. But it's always an interesting thing. Um, and it's interesting. Sky um, has gotten a lot of heat recently for some stuff. Some of it warranted, some of it unwarranted, in my opinion, a lot of it unwarranted. Um, but it's hard because Sky from the very beginning set themselves up as the pinnacle of post doping racing. Like we will never be associated with anyone that's ever doped before. Yeah. And that kind of holier than thou attitude, I think means that they um, are always going to be questioned, especially because they've been so dominant. Right. Like Cannondale draft pack has been the same way. And yet Cannondale hasn't won, you know, for the last five tour de France's uh, and hasn't done so with teams that are far and away better than everyone else seems like something unnecessary to say 
Well, it is, and there's just like they've there's they just talk about how you know we're going to be transparent, and so then anytime that something comes out that they're not totally transparent on, it sets them up to be the bad guy. Right. Yeah, you're just putting yourself in a bad PR position. Mm -hmm. And you think it's the best PR decision mm -hmm. in that beginning time, but then you're not thinking what happens when we succeed down the road. Or just how reality works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I should also say that Sagan won the third stage today. Uh, and not only did he win, he did it in style closing down moves by himself and then being on the front for the last 600 meters of the race. And when he went to launch his sprint, uh, his, he unclipped from his pedal by accident. So he was able to reclip, get back up his momentum and still win the race, which was, it's just one of those things. Like it's almost like he's uh, playing with the rest of us here. <laughs> he's my favorite. I'm, I'm I'm fully decided in that he's my yeah, favorite writer. It's it took me a second because he is like he's so dominant that you almost it's like the LeBron effect of you don't really want to root for him, yeah. but he's just so likable. Like after the yeah. race, it was like um, he had this uh, quote where he's he's notorious for making tactical mistakes because he's so strong that he'll go early and wear himself out, and so he has this quote where he said. Uh, fuck, I went too early again. Um, and that was like his thought, apparently, mm -hmm. he thought. When he, <laughs> and it's just like his candidness and being willing to say that and being like, and it was of the tone of like, this is a Peter totally Peter Sagan thing to do. Yeah. Just to be the strongest and somehow screw it up. Yeah. Um, it, it, he's just, he makes watching races fun, which is what you want. Yep, I agree. He's a part of the reason of me being interested in cycling at all. Is not like he was the very first first personality I latched onto? I'll also just say that it's uh, if if you're going to tune into the Tour de France, I you know there's a lot of times when nothing is happening, but man, the scenery is just spectacular. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, I learned today that uh, all of the they will often pan to the big churches, famous churches that are in all these communities. Mm -hmm. But apparently, there's an organization that writes up a handbook for all of the announcers about oh, yeah. little facts of all of these places, which I just think is what a cool thing to do. I want to I want to be on that committee somehow or other. Gosh, that we we both would just that's that's it that's the goal is i mean like you're talking about geeking out man that's like the definition <laughs> of geeking out man. i want to be the guy that writes a handbook on churches that the tour de france passes starting at three weeks uh we some freaks <laughs> oh man well, you want to talk about our main topic today yeah let's do it All right, so this week, you know, I think we can define it in a couple of ways. I've kind of thought about it as like winning isn't everything, but how, how have you kind of defined our topic this week in your own mind, Kyle? Yeah, winning isn't everything works. Uh, the interest in the obsession with winning, and then probably to something along the lines of like, what are the effects or the consequences of the obsession? It's just kind of how I'm framing it. Um, so in that way, I'm interested in kind of like where it comes from, and then 
you know, what, what happens to uh, our societal institutions at large when winning is so central and so believed in uh, is kind of the answer or the questions I'm trying to answer. Well, so one of the things you mentioned before we came on air was this idea of losing being okay, except when it um, makes a mockery or disrespects the sport. Right. So kind of the place that I want to start is the fact that Adam Silver will probably never let, um, oh gosh, I've forgotten his name now. The guy that created the process uh, for the Philadelphia 76ers. Right. Who made them like the worst possible team for five straight years. Yep. Like Adam Silver will probably never let him have a GM job in the NBA again. Yeah. Because he feels that he made a mockery of it. And yet I think that guy would tell you he did this in order to win. Mm-hmm. What is what does that raise in your mind? Uh, one is I can see both sides very clearly. Um, I see Adam Silver's take because I would imagine he has other GMs that are looking at things like revenue streams. Um, and it probably is a bad image for one's product to purposefully uh, lessen the value of a certain element of that product. Uh, however, I feel like that's good business. <laughs> I think that that's pretty savvy, actually. Uh, that in the world, uh, especially now of like the Warriors, as we were talking, your options are somewhat limited. Um, you can go and try and get a big four, but <sighs> there's only one team that has done that right now. Uh, so why not try and find some other channels? Uh, so I don't think I would call that disrespecting the game. I think for me, uh, losing while disrespecting the game is more about in-game play. Hmm. Uh, so it's not so much with the Houston, what the Astros did or what uh, the 76ers did as much as it is like um, – when I see someone tanking the actual game in gameplay as opposed to tanking a season, uh, because I think those players that played for the Astros in those off years and the players that played in Philadelphia, those off years, uh, they were still playing the game, uh, with respect for the actual game of basketball. Um, so the league in that way is separate from the, the game of basketball itself. Um, do you feel like in some ways you risk with this argument going down this wormhole of um, people, uh, like what it means to respect the game? And so, like, I don't, I don't know. There seems, there seems to be some respectability stuff that goes in there that I'm not sure how I feel about it. What do you mean exactly? Like, I guess there's like, to some degree, I think it means that, like, it requires us to to dictate what it means to respect the game. Yeah. Um, and I think that that can be a troubling thing for us to project onto these players. What Because I, mean, I think, like, this is what we saw with Curios, I think, a few uh, months ago when he talked about quitting a match, essentially. Like, he, right. I think, has to leave the match early or whatever. Right. Um, and everybody was just outraged. Right. And yet you and I talked about how many times these, how many matches these guys have to play, right. the toll it takes on their bodies. And so I just, like, there's part of me that worries that 
about what it means when we talk about disrespecting the game that we risk becoming random arbiters of what it means to to respect the game sure no that's well said and well taken and is making me think twice about it because it is problematic for for more than one reason uh i'm thinking too of just how much privilege it is to say that this is the way the game's played and you and I have spent plenty of time hating on MLB for proclaiming the exact same thing. Um, so I recognize that it's quite problematic and maybe even from a, a place of uh, sus- substantial privilege to say such, such a thing. Um, and, you know, I, the, when I first wrote the phrase down in my notes, it wasn't as much about um, professional sports or professional athletes, actually. Uh, in my mind, I was thinking of my players that I coach, um, which maybe I shouldn't have as much say in how they should respect the game or should not respect it uh, as I do, but I do have a lot of say in that as their coach. Uh, and so I'm just thinking of like, there are times when we have lost and I have been just extremely proud of them. Like, you all played so wonderfully today and like we could not have done better. We were just bested today and that was really fun. I had a great time like competing with you and trying to figure out how to get a win out of this game. And then there are other times where they're being lazy or wimpy or not good teammates or someone's dribbling too much or trying to do too much with the ball or not sticking to a game plan. Um, not respecting their teammates, not sharing. I, it's just like these things that we had worked on in our preparation. And when I don't see it and I'm like, that's when I'm like, today was a bad loss. Like we didn't get much out of this one. Some of you did, but as a team, this, this was a setback for us uh, or something like that. So I, wonder I don't know. If, so how does that sound? Yeah. I think that that for me makes me think that really what we're talking about is not, Losing is okay as long as you respect your fellow competitors. Um, right. But as soon as you, like, if you lose and it, like, you're pissed off because you didn't think you should have lost that game or you thought the other person was an unworthy competitor, if you lose because you didn't respect your teammates enough to pay attention to the game plan or things like that, I, I could see that. Uh, I think there's a very legitimate field to that that you have to when you enter into that game you in some ways enter into a contract with your fellow competitors Mm -hmm. Uh, but i think that that's very much like every game has its own contract in some ways that is written as the game goes on right yeah and it, it makes me think too about like you know the the like uh the Darth Vader athlete or the Darth Vader team, like team Iceland and mighty ducks, like, (laughs) you know, the, the dirty way to win, um, as of course it's easy to hate, but I'm still going to hate on it. I think I'm going to be like, nah, you kind of suck for doing that. Like, (laughs) like, because this game is still going to be here when you're gone. And I believe that these games are good for society. And so, when you're cheapening it by being conniving uh, in pursuit of a win at all costs by any means necessary, that's when I'm going to say, like, of course there's gray area in that rule. Like, we all saw that gray area. We just decided not to enter it, and you did. 
and you had a choice and you decided to do it um, is when I'm like willing to take kind of a conservative standpoint on that and say like, I just really wish you wouldn't do it. Like I'm not even going to adjudicate on it and say you can't, but I just wish you wouldn't kind of thing. And so this for me, I think that most often for me, I think I see disrespect for the game coming from teams that are winning, I suppose. Hmm. Um, so the teams that like that, that don't respect the rules. So like um, Lance Armstrong disrespected cycling when he did what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the opposition of the mighty ducks did. So, you know, the, what's this, um, we stick with hockey, that guy that punched the other guy in the neck and paralyzed them. Right. I forget his name. Like that guy clearly disrespected the game. And so I think that there is perhaps like this legacy that you want to enter into. But I do think that I most often see that not in those people that are losing, um, but in those people that are winning at all costs. Like it's the whole attitude that I think we want to fight against here. Mm -hmm. Um, so they're like what do you sacrifice when you win at all costs you sacrifice your respect for the game right yeah I don't know I'm gonna have to keep thinking about it it's maybe a little more complex than I initially thought it was (laughs) well let me ask you like with with your girls there um, when you guys lose um how do you try and frame it for them? Do you like when right after the match, you know, you say this is a good loss or this is a bad loss, but that next day in practice, um, are you like, are you thinking how do we grow from this or, or how are you kind of framing that? Well, I'll start by saying it's, it's JV soccer and my goal is to make it matter as little as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, however, I want it to be a serious experience for them too, you know, and it, it is a serious experience. If we're going to put this much time into something, let's take it seriously or as much as we can or as much as is healthy. And so for losses, it's kind of like to try and reveal how um, assessment works, self-assessment, self-reflection. So I try and highlight like, well, what did you see going on? And um how did it how did it feel when we were playing a certain way or what can you see that you could do better or, uh help the team or what like overall team strategy type stuff do you think we need to be working on um i'm pretty critical personally to be honest so like i usually try and go with the age-old uh teacher maxim of the sandwich technique so a compliment and then a pretty harsh critique followed by a compliment <laughs> Um, but my critiques are pretty harsh. <laughs> uh, I'm very willing to stand up in front of them and say, like, that was a bad loss. I'm very comfortable with that. Um, but I'm also very comfortable to say, like, that was a good loss too. Um, where I fall short is probably, like, um, I probably don't do enough. Um, I, I probably... Uh, well, I don't know. I'm conflicted now. Sometimes I call out individual players and sometimes I don't. And I wonder if I should n- never call them out. Um, hmm. uh, but the reality is that some players just have more responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm counting on them more to, to do better. So I don't know. Um, 
Uh, I've seen, I, I'm thinking of just other cases too, where like we played a, a, a team last year and they were ranked like four in the state and we were one in the state. This is varsity and they really wanted to beat us, but the rankings were skewed. Like they just weren't going to beat us. It just wasn't going to, I'm not touting us. <laughs> it's just reality. It wasn't going to happen. And the coach had obviously created them like, an impression that this was like their like shining moment. And if they didn't win this game, like their season didn't mean anything. Mm. And so when they lost, he just chewed them out for like 20 minutes uh, in front of everybody, just like railing on them. And it was, it's a softball for this conversation, but just how freaking absurd that was. Um, and just like, I'm sure he's not the only high school girls soccer coach out there in the country doing that. And that, I think one of the points I wanted to make is that just how much of this, I think, comes from parents and coaches. Like, I don't think – there are probably kids that have this, but I think it's mostly a taught thing. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's one of my anecdotes is I came home from my very first varsity soccer practice kind of overwhelmed. And my dad saying something like, yeah, winning matters now. Like – kind of this like suck it up macho thing of like, oh, I, I got to care about winning now. Uh, being 13 years old, I had never cared about it before. Hmm. Like really cared about it. Like how high school sports can care about it. Um, yeah, I think it's totally taught, 100%. What, uh, uh, how do you think we can go about not doing that? Like where does it come from? How do you teach people to value things other than winning? Yeah, I was thinking about that same thing of like, um, especially one of my main points is that this obsession with winning is not going anywhere. Uh, so those of us that don't want to be obsessed with it, um, maybe have work to do in some regards, but also that work is going to come in the face of the reality that it's not going anywhere. I think it's pretty proven as a truism of our culture that we're going to be obsessed with it uh, at large. Um, so my conclusion, and then maybe there's more to it, but uh, I think it is exactly what you were asking me about. It's about the conversation and the communication that happens between player, parents, coaches, administration, um, athletic directors, that it's about creating a culture um, and so it kind of maybe has to come from a, a, a local place before it would ever become ubiquitous at large. Well, I do want to say too, that I think, um, I think you and I both think that winning and losing is still something that should be involved in sports. Like we're not advocating uh, sports where we don't keep score, are we? No, absolutely not. I do think that like the keeping that track record of success and like having a you know a marker for progression is still important right absolutely and this is where i'm going to say like i think the best coaches out there are like experts at it and like knowing when to like after a game say this was or a, a bad or a good loss like you're putting a lot of faith in those coaches i think um and that they should be experts in their field that you can't just put any mom or dad on the sideline and expect them to do well with it. That, um, if we're going to put these kids in this intense of an environment, 
the person in the authority role has a massive amount of responsibility, not with the winning and losing state championships don't matter, but how these kids are communicated to and how like the effects of the overall structures are playing out in those kids' minds, like needs to be, when you keep tabs on it, um, if that is important, um, it's not so much the championships. And so this is, I think, the point where we say that uh, we really want our coaches to stop saying there's no such thing as moral victories. Yeah. Yeah, what a phrase. <laughs> I, uh, it is, it is a really interesting phrase in some ways. Yeah. I was also struck by that, and I have been my whole life, this concept of like, when athletes say like I hate losing and having that be like their motivation. Um, I wonder if we might should work as like coaches and authority figures in sports to deconstruct that a little bit and like help a kid process that. Um, Cause I'm not sure how healthy that is as a, as a way of living that your, your motivation is a fear of loss uh, in general. Yeah, I think it's a very unhealthy thing in some ways. Um, like, I mean, we don't want kids to dwell on that loss and let it, like, burn them down. We want them to come back and push for success. But there's got to be some way to say that uh, mediocre is not the end of the world, that this exactly. may not be your thing. <laughs> That's it. That's the key conversation, I think. I do um, – when I say just that I think that one of the things that I think makes losing so important is that it demonstrates the unfairness of life in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, like that there are a number of sports where you can, like you can play the game the right way and make all the best decisions and still lose. Right. Uh, and so in that way, uh, like we need, I think this idea of valuing loss in some ways can be a way of saying, hey, we understand and don't try and sugarcoat the unfairness of things. Right. Yeah, I, I just um, had the um, consolation trophy conversation with someone the other day, which I'm tired of that conversation, by the way. I am too, but <laughs> I, I want to know your thoughts. Like before we move on, are you in favor of participation trophies? I'm fine with everyone getting a trophy as long as the person that wins gets a bigger one. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, sure. Give everyone. I, yeah, you came out here. You tried. You played. And I'll recognize it. But that person did this it better is, than uh, you. <laughs> this is uh, our, essentially an argument we're making right now for universal basic income. So just understand that, folks. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm still a capitalist, but everyone deserves a little bit. Well, I, I mean, I'd even say... Um, you know, people are still going to pursue excellence, even if the reward is not as great as $200 million. Sure. Good check back on $200 million. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm about exhausted on that, unless you got something else that you wanted to point out. No, I don't think so, other than just that um, I think the best athletes we have are those that can be humble and are compassionate and lost. And so like I look at um, 
like LeBron's statement right after the finals when he talked about super team, mm-hmm. like that for me was his unwillingness to be humble and have compassion in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so now for like some remove uh, for him to say that he thinks Steph should get 400 million, that for me um, is what I, is for me as odd as it seems a statement of humility in some ways. Yeah. A statement of understanding the value of those that we're competing against. Absolutely. Yeah, I can't deny either really enjoying watching professional athletes talk about how much they respect um, fellow competitors. I really enjoy that. I, yeah, and just to see the appreciation. I love – one of my favorite things that ESPN has done lately is to do um, – like have a collection of tweets from athletes about something special that happened. So like mm-hmm. when Booker went for 80, like all of the athletes yeah. that responded yeah. to that, like that's, that for me is really cool. Yeah, I agree. I love that. Did you see Justin Thomas called Jordan Spieth's chip in out of the bunker? No. <laughs> yeah. As they were walking up to the 18th green on that playoff hole, Justin Thomas tweeted, uh, I, I could see Jordan's speed draining this, something like that. And then he <laughs> drained it. Yeah. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you want to go first? Or... Sure, I'll do. I'll go first. So I just played my first nine holes of golf in forever, and I have to say it was quite fun. I think I think there is something in the hitting of just one great shot that makes you want to come back, and that this is true in every sport. Golf in particular has that tradition of one great shot because you hit so many bad ones. But that one shot really fuels the imagination. It's the same with that unbelievable basketball shot that you hit in a pickup game that makes you think you can do anything, or that one huck of the Frisbee that makes you think, wow, this is this sport is just so fantastic. Those are the th- things that bring us back. And so I think that sports in the end are really a thing of moments. Great moments are what makes us fans. That one goal of Thierry Henry's made me an Arsenal and soccer fan forever. Just the grace and effortlessness of it. And so for me, that's just as sports should be, a celebration of breathtaking and hopeful moments. Cool. That's a pleasant way to think about it. Also makes me think about how much uh, improvement plays a role. Mm-hmm. Just doing a little better the next time. Well, yeah, and just like over the course of the round, my putting got much better. Right. I hadn't put a golf ball in forever. And so to hit a, hit a putt on the last hole, just be like, yeah, I can come back. I'll be even better next time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that Malcolm Gladwell piece maybe next week. Oh, I yeah. Did you finish the podcast? No, I'm still not finished, but I'm excited oh, about it. It's it's again. I don't like Gladwell, but it's a great podcast. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to it. All right, what you got, man? I think that I think there is too much sports coverage. I wonder about the extent to which the normalization of seriousness in sports is simply because it is possible, systematically and structurally for media to continue to make money off of our 10-minute, I'll-check-ESPN breaks during work. 
I recognize that this is the timeless dilemma in journalism and media. Are we telling outlets what we want, or are they telling us what we should want? I'm thinking that ESPN in particular has reached a point wherein they continually reap what they have sown, a sports-obsessed culture, a winning-obsessed culture that finds more affirmation in what is being covered and fewer challenges to a status quo way of digesting sports. If this is the case, then I don't think we need to shut down our podcast, but I do think we need to continue to bolster the outlets that are cognizant of the nuanced means by which significance is teased out. It is not significant that so-and-so attained a round number statistic last night, whereas it is significant that LeBron James thinks Steph Curry deserves $400 million. Delineating between these two for the average ESPN reader has to be done individually. ESPN is more than happy for the ad revenue that is generated as we are forced to scroll past insignificant stories while on our way to pulling out stories that matter. I also recognize that this is a pretty thin and problematic argument, but I mostly just want to make a point. So maybe I'll just land on a maxim. One does not have to make something just because they can. Agreed. I'm just so ESPN's new layout is so annoying and I'm frustrated how long it takes me to find articles I care about. It is. And it's like ESPN is still producing really good content. There's a piece by um, Grant Lowe and Brian Winhurst about the complicated ownership situation of the Bucks this week. Yeah. That was really good. But I would never have found it by the normal means of finding it. So I do wonder, like, what, who do you think is doing it right? Well, I just signed up finally because I've been hesitant because I don't like things in my email inbox, but uh, for the redef email that goes out every few days, hmm. um, it's just a guy that pieces together his favorite stories from the last three or four days, uh, and they're really good. Like every article he picks from multiple outlets, um, but every article is meaningful. He, he's excellent at it, um, and I just really appreciate that I can – go straight to him as opposed to scrolling through ESPN's homepage or listening to sports. I, I haven't watched sports center in months. I've kind of gone off of it. Too. There was a time um, like when there was a particular sport, like maybe when March madness was going on, I watched it a bunch, mm-hmm. uh, but not since then. Yeah. Um, but that's all I got. Well, good deal. You want to wrap it up? Yep. Well, thanks for listening, folks. And you can listen uh, uh, ahead because I'll just let you know that Kyle has just committed to creating a several times a week email that will let you know what stories you should read. Um, So check back soon as we will share uh, a listserv about that. But in the meantime, have a great week. And thank you, Kyle. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. I'm not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man.